0: Starting, though, with a resolution decision, a decision from the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal. And this was a case about a BC man who was trying to get compensation from Air Canada following some flight delays. But the tribunal, well, did not side with the complainant. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is John Gradick, Logistics Supply Chain and Aviation Management Professor at McGill University. Thank you so much for taking some time.
1: Hi, Jill. Nice to hear you.
0: Uh, Great to chat with you. This is one of those cases, I think, we we all like to blame the airlines when there are delays and when things don't go smooth when we are traveling. But this BC Civil Resolution Tribunal uh, found that Air Canada didn't or wasn't to blame. Are you at all surprised by this? Um,
1: No, I think courts have taken, you know, very different tacks depending on the judge that you get and their interpretation of what the rules are. And here's a here's an instance where you know the BC tribunal basically has sided with the airline that the you know the the the, the situation and the circumstances uh, associated with this claim, the judge believes that it wasn't in the airline's control. So I think you know you, you basically take your chances going into uh, small claims court into tribunals. It depends on the on the judge's uh, mindset.
0: Hmm. Uh, the uh, the case that, that we're talking about, so this was uh, the tribunal heard that this was an individual who had booked flights with Air Canada. It was back in June of last year, and that the return flight out of Boston was late and uh, delayed by, I think it was uh, more than an hour. As a result, uh, this passenger missed his connecting flight uh, from Montreal back to Vancouver, and uh, he ended up staying, I believe, in Boston. Uh, Air Canada did offer up... Uh, a replacement flights and gave him a revised itinerary uh, but he was still trying to get compensation for that is it something that when, when it's something like a flight delay like that if the airline offers up a revised itinerary does that kind of weaken your argument if you're trying to get compensation yeah i think you
1: know, the the airline in this case you know should have offered you know the 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 new flight which was like 10 or 12 hours late and under the, the, the air passenger protection regulations that are out there, um, you know, that person would have been eligible for a um, direct cash compensation uh, for that delayed flight. Um, and I think if it's like over nine hours, I believe, you know, you get a thousand dollars compensation. And plus the airline has to accommodate you overnight and guarantee you a seat on the next flight. So. You know I think this 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 case basically had the passenger looking for a significantly a higher amount of money. Um, I think it was over four thousand dollars that he was claiming, uh, and you know without the claim, he would have gotten somewhere around two thousand dollars if I, if, I, if I can read the uh, the details properly. so yeah, you're, you're basically you know stretching it when you're doing these things. you have to understand the regulations, you have to understand the provisions. And I think somebody who tries to go above and beyond what the what the provisions say is probably going to get slapped down
0: by the courts. And uh, this was also an issue. I know that Air Canada said that this wasn't in there in their realm of it, they weren't responsible because it wasn't a staffing issue. I know the company, Air Canada, said this was an issue that had to do with the gate in Boston and the Boston airport. Are we paying more attention, do you think, because of what happened last Christmas and with flight delays and, like you mentioned, with with passenger rights and those rights becoming a little stronger? Are we paying more attention to what's causing these delays and, and, and kind of learning more about them?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's a you know you're right there's a lot more visibility as to you know who's really at fault when you talk about some of these delays and you now you you as a passenger now have a lot more clout uh, with the new regulations to basically ask the, the, the you know the tough question as to what's involved in this case uh, you know I I you know there's still not enough information to basically say is it within the control or outside the control. The airlines will, in fact, claim, you know, um, on most instances, that it's outside of their control because they don't want to pay compensation. So, you know, that's where the judge comes in. Um, You know, the CTA is a a good form because they're professionals. They understand the mechanics of the airline business. Sometimes the judges that you have in these cases don't really understand, you know, the defined details of what does constitute, you know, airline control or not airline control. In this case, I think that Air Canada made the argument that, you know, the airplane was late coming to the gate of Boston and that caused the outbound flight to be late. So, yeah, it's not part of our control. But, it, you know, if, if I look at I don't want to be held in contempt of the B.C. Tribunal. Uh, so, you know, I would hesitate to say that, you know, there, there probably was some circumstances that would have had me look at a different decision.
0: Interesting, yeah, because that was part of the ruling too. That the the, the um, tribunal, uh, the adjudicator said, I find that a gate hold and a long taxi are not staffing issues within Air Canada's control, and that seemed to be kind of uh, the crux of why he didn't find Air Canada liable for this.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you know, and, and my my argument would have been, you know, if I if I was part of counsel at that point, would be, you know, why was that? Why was that gate hold? Was it was a flight late into Boston so that it had, you know, a, a gate hold and a t- long taxi? If it had come in on time, would have still have had that gate hold and long taxi? And that's what the, the information I'm missing. So, yeah, the, the, the it is an Air Canada's control. You know, if the outbound flight from Montreal to Boston was late by the airline's fault and therefore the Boston to Montreal flight would be automatically late. So, you know, that's to me, that to me would say, yeah, if you, dr- if you drill down just a little bit further, you'd find a root cause. And it might have been airline control if you had done that.
0: Right. And I guess maybe, I mean, if you do that, could you not do that with almost every case? If you do kind of a chain reaction, get it to the point that there, at some point it is the airline's fault.
1: Yep. yep. That's, uh, that's the beauty of the regulation. <laughs> and, but, you, but you need somebody... You need somebody that basically understands the mechanics of, of, of airline planning and airline operations. Because, you know, you can, at first glance, it may not look like airline control, but if you basically drill down just a little bit, you'd say, wait a second, you know, it was airlines control at a certain point in time during the day, and that caused the other, other flights to be delayed. So as far as I'm concerned, that's airline control.
0: Interesting. Uh, I'm curious, and I know this, this has nothing to do with this case, and if you don't have the answer, that's fine. But when you're talking about airline control and, and flight disruptions, I know all eyes are watching, especially, well, all eyes of anybody who has a WestJet ticket is certainly watching to see what happens with a potential pilot strike with WestJet. How would that work out, do you think, if that does happen and people aren't able to fly or lose their flights?
1: Well, I think, you know, that that's going to be really on WestJet. WestJet's got the the brand that it's trying to protect with this, uh, with, you know, with this strike. Um, You know, I I think that we've had enough instances of of labor relations uh, issues across aviation that typically it's the airline that steps in that has those passengers, that has the money from those passengers uh, to offer some solutions and the solutions could be either refunds or it could be airline credits Or it would be also trying to protect the passenger on another carrier's flight. So those are the options that are available to WestJet. WestJet is going to have to do something. It just can't walk away from it. Uh, uh, Otherwise, you know, the, the brand value and the consumer reaction to WestJet not doing something to step up and take care of its passengers is going to be very harmful.
0: Right. What would you do or what advice would you give somebody if they were holding a WestJet ticket for after May 16th right now?
1: Uh, You know, I'd say that, you know, if your flights are between May 16th and let's just give you a date, May 23rd, you know, I would basically reach out to WestJet sooner than later to say, so what are we doing here? Uh, But if your flights are beyond May 23rd, I wouldn't worry about it. And the reason I say that is because this is not going to be a long strike. If a strike happens, it's going to be short and sweet. Uh, the, the union is going to make their own make their point, but WestJet definitely needs its pilots back. So the the, the pilots, in my opinion, are in the driver's seat on this one, uh, and they should basically be able to leverage uh, a settlement out of WestJet that uh, currently might be out of WestJet's you know uh, <laughs> strategy. But you know, with the pressure of no revenue coming in and the airline shut down, I think there might be some pressure on the WestJet team to kind of uh, come up with a compromise solution
0: all right so i know a lot of people are watching that john thank you so much for being with us today
1: uh jill it's been a pleasure take care have a great weekend
0: Well, imagine having lived in your home for many, many years, huge floods hit the area and an access road is washed out. No problem. The road gets rebuilt and you have access to your home once again. Except that's not what is happening on Fish Camp Road, which is located in the Othello area near Hope. And yesterday on the show, we talked with resident Evan Bell about why he is fearful that any day now he is going to lose all access to his home. He joined us to tell us about what was happening as well as the legal advice he got, which was to perhaps get a helicopter pad.
2: that's what my first lawyer suggested after he he researched everything i said well you know where can we take this next what what is the next step he he said there really isn't one you could buy a helicopter (laughs) and that's about about the only solution but i just it just doesn't seem right to me i look at the the laws pertaining to public roads and it 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 appears to me i mean i'm no lawyer by any means but that if it says that if a public road is a public road, it is always a public road. You cannot make, uh, you cannot decommission a road from, from being a public road into a private road. And it also says if public funds are used to maintain the road, then it becomes, if it is a private road, it becomes a public road. So it just doesn't make sense to me that it's. it, it can't be a, that it isn't still a public road. Now, there's a document I found on the Canadian Energy Regulator site that was submitted by Trans Mountain when, when they had to submit everything for the pipeline. And it states clearly on that document that Fish Camp Road is a public road.
0: All right, and that is the road that he needs to access his property. He and his family live on that property. Again, they've lived there for many, many years. Well, this case, this predicament has got the attention of Peter Adamo, who is a director with the Fraser Valley Regional District. And Peter joins us now to talk about what could possibly be a solution. Thanks so much for being with us.
3: You're very welcome. Thanks for calling, Jill, and following up on this story.
0: Well, Evan Bell was on the program yesterday and explained how things have unfolded and what he's looking at as far as potentially losing all access to his property. What is your take on what has unfolded here?
3: It's a tremendously unfortunate situation. It's very strange the way it unfolded after the atmospheric rivers and they took their access away. Um, As a newly elected official, I wasn't aware of the situation until He called me, him and his family, a while back, and we started to look into this, and it just appeared to get more and more bizarre.
0: And it certainly is, and so much going on with, like you said, the flooding, which which caused damage, the Trans Mountain Pipeline construction, what's happening with the neighbors. What happens or what can be done, do you think, to try and resolve this or to maintain access to the Bell home?
3: well i was really hoping that the neighbors could get together and solve this on their own that would have been the the best and easiest solution for whatever reason it doesn't appear that it's going that way however there's still time for people to come up with a solution i would like to think if everyone got together and and tried to work this out we're not talking about we're not talking about a very large piece of land we're talking about a small access point that enables three families to, to live in their homes that they've had for 21 years.
0: And if that doesn't happen, as, as it doesn't seem like there's a lot of will on the part of the neighbours to do that, uh, Evan talked a lot about the fact that Fish Camp Road was, has been maintained has been, there has been public money that's gone into maintaining that road, uh, even though it seems like it's difficult to find documentation that shows that it is. And, And one of his things was that once something becomes a public road, it can't then not be a public road. Do you think there are still more possibilities there to have that road declared a public road and have it fixed?
3: I think there's always a possibility there. I'm not understanding um, Ministry of Transportation's vision on this, they did have that road for quite some time. It, it comes right to the border of hope and then it goes into the regional district lands and every map that people can see for the last 50 years shows that Fishcamp Road was an active road that only applied to the one family granted, but nonetheless it was still there and it appears to have been registered somewhere. I saw, I've seen for the last number of years, an actual Provincial professional sign placed at the entrance of it and then once the story became news most recently all of a sudden the sign disappeared. not sure mm-hmm. who took it down but it seemed unusual that it was there and it was active and and they had used it for all those years. Their, their address actually their house address is actually on Fish Camp Road and now Ministry of Transportation is saying that it's a private land issue and it belongs to someone else. And it was never theirs to start with. So I'm not understanding that whole process.
0: And I, I guess, is it a matter as well of trying to find that documentation? Evan had mentioned that uh, during the legal battle or the, the court case portion of this, uh, he didn't have documentation, but it is possible that that exists.
3: I would like to think that it's possible. I don't know what transpired through the court case and what kind of documents they were they were searching for. Um, We've gone through, the regional district has gone through with um, Ministry of Transportation to try to determine whether or not these documents ever did exist, where they came from, when the land was transferred over, and they were unable to provide any of that.
0: Hmm. So so at this point, too, he also talked about the fact that Trans Mountain Pipeline has been working in the area and using uh, access, another temporary access road to the property. Uh, He talked about the fact that they had a bit of a a verbal agreement that when that work was completed, Trans Mountain would fix that road or would maintain the access. Uh, He says that now Trans Mountain has said, actually, no, we're not going to do that. That's not part of this plan. Uh, Does Trans Mountain, do you think, play a role in this?
3: I think they can play a small role in this. Absolutely. They were there from the beginning. Somewhere along the way, I discovered some paperwork that was submitted recently to Ministry of Transportation that Trans Mountain used to identify access ways for their pipeline and for public access. And they identified Fish Camp Road as a public road. It states on that along with the other forty or fifty roads that they've used. Some are clearly identified as private. However, Fish Camp Road was was identified by Trans Mountain as public, so I'm I can only assume, and I ain't assuming, but they got that information from Ministry of Transportation as well, and that's the first I'd seen of that of that paperwork. So it clearly is there's misinformation on all sides of this, but it does appear that it belonged to someone at some point, and it wasn't private because otherwise they wouldn't have said that. Now, whatever verbal agreements they had made with Mr. Bell, Um, you know, I'm obviously not aware of that other than him telling me and you, and I would like to think that that was all part of their process in trying to obtain access to lands to, to build the pipeline, which they're still there.
0: Right, and that was one of the things that, that Evan mentioned as well. That that they'd had this this deal, and even even if they didn't have this verbal agreement for Trans Mountain to to fix the the, yeah. the road to have the access to his property, uh, he was saying that even even if he loses access, there there's some clause there, or there, there's that Trans Mountain would still have access as they need access to the construction site, which he said I think is is kind of adding insult to injury.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure what the rules are with respect to Trans Mountain. However, their plan, I believe, is to declassify the road as they're nearing completion of that particular pipeline pathway that does go through Mr. Bell's property along with uh, two or three other adjacent properties. So once they declassify that and decommission it, there's a process that takes place and then the road is actually shut down because right now it's currently on someone else's property and goes through Mr. Bell's property so once that access is closed there is no longer any access to that now having the knowing the pipeline a little bit in my short period of time here um, I think they're very cooperative and they would like to help they believe it's probably not their responsibility either however we'd like to think that all the parties together could come up with a solution that would help this.
0: Right. And I know you had put forward an idea or the possibility of with the neighbours and with Evan Bell's land and then there is a crown parcel of land that's also adjacent to that. And, and was it your idea that perhaps they could get approval to build a new road or to, to put a road on that crown or to take some of the crown property?
3: Well, it's my understanding that with any Crown parcel, they would have to go through a process through the provincial government to, to obtain a, an easement or a right-of-way through that. And then who would be, I believe, they would be responsible for making their own road. I don't know that that's a really feasible solution. Um, I believe it would be tremendously expensive. And there really shouldn't be a need for that because there are a couple of other much easier solutions.
0: Right, and, and I think that's what Evan was saying too, that even if that was something and they got approval to do that, it would be extremely expensive. And, and just to, like, like you're saying too, uh, surely that there's uh, an easier way or a less expensive way to figure out a solution. I believe so. So what do you see happening next? Because we we even joked about it a bit that one of Evan's lawyers had said, well, maybe it's time you build a helicopter pad because it looks like air might be the only way you're going to have access to your property. Uh, That's obviously not a long-term solution either. Uh, Does this go to the province for more consideration? Is there a minister that could could help out with this? Or where do you see things going next?
3: Well, I think one of the solutions that a neighbour came up with recently is a possibility and that the owner that is blocking the land there are two owners involved here but the one owner that is blocking an access that he's had for a number of years and a, through a previous owner that that runs that's the shortest distance to his property off of a fellow road would be terrific to maintain that and keep it the road is already there the access is already there and the owner of that land has has blocked that as you're aware So, Ministry of Transportation, I'll I'll back up a little bit. When the Othello Road collapsed through the atmospheric river and the floods and all of the damage that was done, they started to buy out some of the damaged properties or properties that completely disappeared into the river and had paid out two or three, possibly even four, individuals. One of them was a trailer park that was there that belonged to uh, a woman and who has since sold out to Ministry of Transportation and moved off because she can no longer run a business there. Now, one of the options that came up the other day in discussing things with a neighbor was that why don't you just take that 20 feet by 100 feet road access that's already there, include it into, create it as an easement for the Bell family to use, and however they work out a remuneration for that, but then Ministry of Transportation can give from the property that they have already received on their purchase, they can, add that piece of property to the other end of the land for the woman that already owns it. So she wouldn't actually be in fact losing any land. She would give up 20 feet by 100 feet on one side of her property and acres away she would gain the same amount back. So it would be, I would think, a win-win. There'd be no loss of land there and it would just be a matter of figuring out some paperwork and I guess letting some lawyers work on that program. But I think that's a possibility and that would be great if Ministry of Transportation can work with the two owners to try to work out a solution. Whether or not they're looking at that option, I'm uncertain, but I will be presenting that to them today.
0: All right. and then it, So then it would really be up to the, the Ministry of Transportation if they want to pursue that avenue and, and perhaps find a, a resolution there?
3: Yeah, I believe so. They, they're already rerouting a fellow road, as you're aware, how much damage occurred there and that it's still not repaired. So they are rerouting it, and at this stage, it would be the perfect time to make an alteration to their plan, which I don't believe would be a really significant impact on them. They would just simply create an easement of some sort on the corner of one property and add it to the corner of a property that they, in fact, actually own, that they're planning to use for the Othello road reroute already.
0: Well, it will be interesting to see what happens after you uh, present that plan, that idea to uh, the ministry. Peter, thank you so much for joining the show and for updating us on this. Appreciate it.
3: You're very welcome, Jill. Thanks for your interest in this. And we're really hoping the best for, for these families and other families that have been affected by this type of situation throughout the province.
0: Well, every year, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation hands out the Teddy Awards. And joining the show now to talk about the winners is Franco Terrazano, the federal director with the CTF. Thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, it's nice to talk about awards, although these aren't really awards that anybody would like to get, I think. You have released the 25th annual Teddy Waste Awards. Before we get into the recipients, can you tell us a little bit about the award itself?
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, they're giant, golden, pig-shaped trophies that we give to the politicians and bureaucrats uh, for the best of the worst in government ways. So we know politicians and bureaucrats, they can handle outrage So we like to mix in a little bit of mockery, though, and we like to remind them, hey, if you're going to waste taxpayers' money, we're going to shine some light on it, and Canadians are going to laugh at (laughs) you.
0: All right. Well, let's get to the recipients then. I want to start with the the bigger ones, and I guess we should be happy that uh, BC, I don't think, has come in with the the municipal or or the provincial winner. However, uh, all Canadians are impacted by the, the federal teddy winner, and that one goes to the governor general.
4: Yes, yes. Governor General Mary Simon for racking up nearly six figures, folks, nearly $100,000 her entourage on airplane food. Now, the back story there is you had the Governor General say, yeah, you know, it's pretty much like normal airline food. Well, let me tell you what they had. They had beef wellington with reju, they had carpaccio, they had stuffed pork tenderloin. Now, I don't know about you, I, I fly a little bit here and there. I've never seen beef Wellington flavored chips, let alone beef Wellington on my flight.
0: Uh, no, I don't think I've ever had uh, food like that uh, with with some of the, uh, and the and the other ones listed as well. That uh, that looks like not such a not such a bad menu on a flight if it wasn't for the fact that taxpayers were footing the bill.
4: Yeah, yeah. And let me just say, that was a really jam-packed category, right? A lot of politicians and bureaucrats really put their best foot forward, wasting taxpayers' money. Let me just give you a nominee that was so, so close to winning. It was Global Affairs Canada. I can't believe this actually happened, but we have all of the government documents proving it. They spent more than $12,000 funding live performances in other countries, of seniors reliving their sexual histories in front of a live audience. I almost can't get through speaking this. It's so hilarious. You know, I should be crying, but we're laughing instead. They seriously spend thousands of dollars on these performances where seniors would get on stage and talk about their first time, best time, last time, worst time. And, and, you know, I don't have any kids, but I'm pretty sure that when parents tell their children to listen to their elders, That's not what they have in mind.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that one because I actually saw the news release about that uh, just a short time ago. And I was a bit confused as well and thought, is this some kind of uh, joke or some kind of uh, play on, on, on something? It almost seemed like it was a bit of a spoof.
4: Yeah, you would think so. I mean, we even found a video of one of these shows that happened in Taiwan Uh, We really couldn't believe it was true. We had to watch the video, unfortunately. You know, a better use of tax dollars would be paying uh, seniors to talk about something else. I mean, literally anything else. (laughs) On your tax return, they'll send the hounds after you. Uh, But with billions and billions of dollars in potentially wasted money, uh, the CRA is saying, well, we're not going to fully investigate it. And for that, they are a worthy recipient of the heavy waste
0: award. Yeah, and I think when that first came out too, uh, people would understand that everything was done so quickly and getting that money out the door and and understandable, there would be a few mistakes or or a few few checks that went to to people that maybe uh, they weren't destined to or they shouldn't have gone, but $32 billion seems like a lot.
4: Oh, it's a huge amount of money, right? And that's why we're giving them the Lifetime Achievement Award because we're not talking about just a little bit of money that happened just at the very, very early days of the pandemic. No, no, no. We're talking about potentially more than $32 billion in ineligible or questionable subsidies that went out the door. And then when the CRA is asked about one of the biggest buckets of questionable subsidies, uh, they essentially said, well, it's not worth their time to fully investigate it.
0: Huh. All right. So they get the Lifetime Teddy Award. That's the the CRA. Uh, let's take a look at this, a couple of the other ones. And again, like I mentioned, uh, I guess we can be happy that uh, they're not here in B.C., but they're still definitely worth mentioning because these are a couple of doozies as well.
4: Let's talk about the provincial winner. And uh, it was Quebec. Uh, Quebec always has. Some very strong nominees um okay so quebec let me lay the groundwork quebec is the only province that requires their drivers to renew the license every single year so quebec wanted to streamline this process and they also wanted to reduce the number of government employees that are needed uh, to renew the licenses so the obvious solution would be to just do what every other province does and don't make people renew their license every year Did Quebec do the obvious solution? No, of course not. Quebec had its own unique solution, and that was to create an online app. Okay. However, the app was such a disaster that the government had to hire an extra 150 bureaucrats to clean up the mess. Okay, so listen to this, folks. They try to reduce the number of bureaucrats, and I'm no mathematician, but you don't reduce the number of bureaucrats by hiring an extra 150 bureaucrats.
0: Wow, and what was the cost of that?
4: Oh, it was uh, it was about $450 million. So this is also a large sum of money, especially when you're talking about uh, provincial governments.
0: Yeah, and I, I did not realize that in Quebec you have to uh, renew your driver's license every year. I thought it was a bit onerous doing it every five years, but every year seems like a bit much.
4: No kidding. Let me just give you a quick other uh, nominee, another one from Quebec. <laughs> They're spending $55 million subsidizing Zeppelin, right? Is that really the new innovative technology that the government wants Mm. to be subsidizing? I mean, maybe it was new and innovative in the year 1900. (laughs) What are they going to subsidize next? The typewriter? Come on.
0: (laughs) All right. So uh, Quebec not looking great there as far as uh, the provincial teddies. Uh, The municipal ones, this one takes us to Charlottetown. Yeah, and this
4: one's a crazy one. So we're giving it to uh, the counselor, Alana Yankov. Now, she did her own renovations on her house. One of the things that she renovated was the driveway. They needed to move the driveway into a new location. Now, where's probably the worst place to put your driveway? Directly behind a telephone pole. (laughs) So we have these photos on stage. She literally made her driveway right behind a telephone pole. Okay, so she had to remove the telephone pole. Well, ladies and gentlemen, who do you think should have paid to remove the telephone pole? If you guessed the person who put their driveway behind it, you'd be wrong. She stuck taxpayers with the $4,600 bill to move the telephone pole. Now, that is pretty bad. But here's another thing that it it raises, right? Here's a question. Uh, Ms. Yankoff, (laughs) did you see the telephone pole before you built the driveway? (laughs) Because if you didn't see the telephone pole, then maybe driving isn't for you.
0: Wow. And you know what? That also made me think, too, is I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest she didn't build the driveway completely herself, but that there must have been a crew and nobody noticed that there was a telephone (laughs) pole behind it.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You'd you'd love to be a part of that committee or that crew. Hey, being like, are you sure you want to put that here? Are you really sure?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in that case too, so $4,600 that she billed taxpayers, and did that, that go ahead even after it, it came out that she was billing taxpayers? That was it? She th- It's not like she uh, she took it back or anything and paid it? They, they were on the hook for no, it? No,
4: no, no. We are not aware of any, any, any such thing of that nature. No, no, no. Uh, from all the information that we have up to date is that uh, it was a bill to the taxpayer. Hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine that, folks?
0: (laughs) I mean, these are are lighthearted. They're fun and and they're funny in some cases, if if not a bit sad, but also shining a light on the fact that these are our hard-earned dollars and uh, it can be a bit uh, frustrating when we see them spent like this.
4: Yeah, you know, we do try to keep it uh, lighthearted. You know, another, but to your point, right, one of the reasons we do want to draw attention to this, especially now, When you have so many families who are really struggling, of course, we all went through the pandemic, restrictions of that nature. Now we're seeing the price of food through the roof, gasoline, right? Um, People are struggling and people work very hard for the money they earn and the taxes they pay. And so when when you hear the examples of politicians and bureaucrats really disregarding the fact that people work so hard for their money, um, I, I think it rightfully makes a lot of people very upset. And that's another reason that we we like to put a spotlight on some of the wasteful spending coming from politicians and bureaucrats.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Franco, for bringing us the winners and explaining how you came up with them. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much.
4: Hey, thanks for having me on.